I invite you to turn this evening not to Luke 15, but back to 2 Peter chapter 3, and finish off what we commenced this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3. For those who were not here this morning, we addressed a topical message, a subject that deals, uh, dealing with the whole aspect of woke ideology, titled the message, The Cult of Woke. This is part two. I wasn't sure if I would get finished this morning. Turned out that that was not going to happen unless I detained you for longer than you might have appreciated. So we come back this evening to finish it. And there is a place for dealing with various subjects and matters that arise in our day. But the text that I am just drawing attention to, and I won't comment too much again this evening on, but Second Peter 3, verses 17 and 18 form the text, just as it reminds us of, yes, there are false teachers, yes, they need to be warned, that's what Peter is doing in this epistle, but the way to prevent yourself from being influenced by them. Yes, you need to be warned, but you need to grow in grace and in the knowledge, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So reading those verses again, Second Peter three seventeen, ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen and amen indeed. Let us pray once again, ask for the Lord's help. Our God, we thank Thee for the testimony of those saved and redeemed, and we sing words like what we just sang, and our hearts cannot help but be lifted up. We're brought to great visions of acceptance and reconciliation with God and dining with the Lord and being received, never to be sent away. We bless Thee for Thy mercy. We, we don't deserve it. We have sinned so grievously, so repeatedly, so boldly. And we have taken thy mercies and misused them, misapplied them. God, we're thankful that there's mercy with thee. We're thankful the blood of Jesus cleanses away our sins. Grant us a deepening repentance and appreciation for what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us tonight as we look at this subject, and I pray it will be a means of fencing in the hearts of your people, keeping them from error, from deception, and the wicked ways of the enemy. May there be light in the heart of every child of God and a receptiveness to the truth rather than to the, the falsehoods of our generation. So grant us thy wisdom. Give us insight. Again, should something be left unsaid, 
help us to skip over it. If something needs to be said that we haven't previously meditated upon, give us understanding. And above all, build thy church, extend thy kingdom, save the lost, strengthen thy people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already noted with you, this morning we communicated part one of this message of the cult of woke. And so if you were not here this morning, and I know that's the case for a number, then you're going to need to go back and listen to that message. I stated this morning that if I spent a year on the campus of Bob Jones University, I would be surprised if I did not find some aspects of woke ideology there. Now, in saying that, and I think, I think it was clear this morning, I wasn't uh, saying anything about Bob Jones and making it out to be a dangerous place to be. I'm simply pointing out the fact that this ideology is like a virus. It gets everywhere. And in fact, I was thinking about it and reminded of it today that just two and a half years ago, when all the BLM stuff was happening, and you remember they were trying to tear down every statue that was seen as marking or elevating an oppressor of the past, that in the midst of that, the Presbyterian Church, the First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, I released a statement, I think it was around June or July of 2020, of them removing certain names from signage and other aspects of their ministry. The pastor of that church, who's a high-profile individual, and I'm not here to make an enemy of him or even to misspeak with regard to him, but he's, he's well-known within reform circles. He, in that church, made the decision, and I'm quoting from their public statement, the immediate removal of the Thornwell and Palmer names on church buildings, the summer lecture series, and church publications, end quote. And when that happened, it, it startled many, many solid people, many people like you, uh, individuals that are give their heart to the, the Scriptures, endeavor to be biblical, and, and seeing it come from a church like that was, was a little unsettling. James Henley Thornwell and Benjamin Morgan Palmer were two of the church's most significant pastors, flawed men like the rest of us, and some of their views problematic, but to remove their names, couldn't, you couldn't help but wonder, well, how do you justify Scripture's testimony of a man like David that we're told was a man after God's own heart. And yet we see his shortcomings, his sins, his wickedness, and yet still, still there's a place. You, you wonder if we are to go through all of history, there is no one to learn from. You just delete everyone because they have some wrong views, faulty views, uh, perhaps some sins or grievances in their lives that we disagree with. We all have them. Our, our, our posterity, should the Lord tarry, is going to look at us and consider similar things. But you see, when it happened, and you can't help but wonder, and only they who were involved in the decision can say what was going on, but you can't help but wonder, wonder if it was all the BLM stuff that really was the motivating factor. That being at the forefront of public consciousness was was moving them to make that decision. I draw no conclusions. I'm simply illustrating how insidious this ideology is. It comes in and makes demands. Makes demands not just on individuals, but perhaps their main focus upon institutions. 
upon universities, upon public education, upon government entities, upon churches. Almost every university, school, major denominations like the SBC, they've already been dealing with this for, for years, facing this, this, whole, this whole matter. So let's review really quickly what we looked at this morning. I'm using the word woke to describe the contemporary expression of critical theory. Critical theory is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on society and culture to reveal, critique, and challenge power structures. Critical theory argues that social problems stem more from social structures and cultural assumptions than from individuals. Don't blame the individual, blame the structure, blame the setting in which they find themselves. The term woke originated when black activists warned one another to quote-unquote stay woke, meaning you need to stay alert to the reality of racism. But in recent times it has expanded its meaning so that you need to be alert or aware of all sorts of perceived bigotry and discrimination. So as we looked at the cult of woke this, woke this morning, we saw first the relevance of this issue, and in that, God's Word deals with false ideas. That's why it's relevant. God's Word deals with it. We, we can't ignore false ideas because God's Word gives us an understanding that false ideas are to be seen and exposed. And we turn to Deuteronomy 13 to see a key passage that actually calls upon society to put to death those that expose falsehoods and try to foist them on people. Secondly, God's Word has something to say about woke ideas. This is particularly important that we understand this, that it's dealing with. God's Word speaks to this ideology. We need to understand that because it's infiltrating the church. This morning I listed various books written by pastors over recent years that have been widely read and influencing many pulpits across this nation and beyond. Vody Bauckham states in his book, Fault Lines, which is a good book, and I can recommend it to you. He says, there are groups and ministries that have embraced critical race theory, and those are problematic. But there is a larger group that is sympathetic to it because of their desire to fight what they see as a problem of racial injustice. There's a broader group in the evangelical sphere, let's say, that are trying to show sympathy but in their effort to be sympathetic, they imbibe some of the false ideas and go about their support in the wrong way. So, the relevance of the issue. Secondly, the recognition of what the woke movement is. First, the woke movement is a cult. Vody Bauckham points out the same thing in his book. He says, at the center of the coming evangelical catastrophe is a new religion, or more specifically, a new cult. I'm going on to say this cult could be accurately named the cult of anti-racism. He is dealing with it very narrowly in that way. I'm obviously overlapping, and there's a lot of overlap uh, with regard to how this whole theory and movement applies to much more beyond racism, but he's dealing with it within that kind of narrow focus, so he calls it anti-racism. It's a cult of anti-racism. And when you think about a cult, it's not easy to define, as I said this morning, but I suggest that three things. First, it must display unquestioning loyalty to a person, idea, object, movement, or work. Secondly, 
It must have a system of beliefs, agreed-upon beliefs. And thirdly, it must redefine old terminology and invent new terminology. So does the woke movement display unquestioning loyalty? We said yes. Does it have a system of beliefs? We said yes. We noted four, four things that you will find when you start mining into this. What is governing their speech? What is making them say what they say? Why do they hold to these views? Premise one, society is divided into oppressed and oppressor groups. Right? You have to see these categories, and you're either in one or the other. You're either an oppressor or you're the oppressed. And so these categories are then used to establish whether you're one or the other, and categorizing everyone is part of intersectionality. And we looked at that this morning briefly. Premise two, oppression occurs through hegemonic power. Hegemony, uh, hegemony is the idea that power is preserved by the dominant group, whether deliberately or even unwittingly, they are preserving their power, maintaining their power. Premise three, lived experience of the oppressed gives them access to truth that the oppressors do not have. And this lived experience, as we said this morning, is given priority over verifiable facts, over anything that is empirical data. I mean, it, you, the lived experience trumps it. And I quote it, and I quote it again, one of the most important textbooks in this whole area called Race, Class, and Gender. It lays out this, and I quote, objectivity, as found through rational thought, is a Western and masculine concept that we will challenge through this text. So, when you think of trying to find what's, what's the objective truth what, what is the reality? What is true? What is rational? What is real? They look at that and say that is Western and masculine, and it has therefore an oppressive bias that ought to be opposed, which means your experience is more important. Premise four, you must live for social justice, seeking to liberate oppressed groups by undermining the current structures, institutions, and cultural norms. And, again, that speaks for itself. So, I outlined four fundamental issues with woke ideology. First, where God is acknowledged at all, He tends to be reimagined. Second, the primary problem everyone faces is external oppression, not personal sin. That's, again, this is what they, they believe. Third, logically deduced from that then, the answer to man's problems is not the cross, but reparations from the oppressor, and the readjustment of hegemonic powers. And fourth, even if one identifies with Christ, that identity plays second fiddle to other identities such as ethnicity and gender and so on. So that brings us to where we left off this morning. And we move then into the third aspect of, of defining or understanding a cult, characteristics of a cult. And so we ask the question, does the movement redefine old terminology and invent new terminology? And it does. I've already mentioned terms like critical theory. Some of this may be new to you. I don't know. Critical theory, theory, intersectionality, hegemonic power, and so on. But there, there are others. There are other uh, terms that are used. Now, the terms come up all the time. I mean, we're always dealing with new words, especially in the English-speaking world. Always. Every year, there's a list of new words that get put into the dictionary. 
and words that go from being nouns to verbs and so on because of how their use changes. This is nothing new. I mean, we don't talk about dumps anymore. We talk about landfills. We don't talk about something being used anymore. We talk about it being pre-loved. Governments don't lie. They engage in disinformation. People aren't handicapped anymore. They're disabled. They aren't deaf. They're hearing impaired. No one is old anymore. They are seniors. In many places, we have substituted man for person and people for humans. Some of this is woke-influenced, I'll just say. It definitely is. It's woke-influenced. Uh, we, we, you'll find, for example, uh, we want to talk about birthing persons instead of mothers. And, and why is that? Why is that? It's not, it's not for no reason. It's because mother offends transgenders. And so we talk about birthing persons. So some of it is just shifting language. Some of it is being driven by an agenda. Because words shape how you think. You can't think without words. And so they change the language and they change the definitions of things and they add new words in and give meanings to it. So you adopt a sympathy for their view. But it goes further. And I'm debtor to the work of Dr. Peter Bogosian. He has a short series called Woke in Plain English. Very short little videos where he deals with certain terms and gives an understanding of what is meant by the terms when they're being used. So he has, I think, 26 or 27 of them. I'm not going to mention them all here. I have 10 that I have here. But I have ordered them in a way that he didn't. That is that some of this is redefining terminology or giving a certain understanding of it that maybe previously you wouldn't have known otherwise. And some of it are new words altogether, words you just would never use unless it came to you through this means. So redefine terminology. He, he deals with equity and equality. It's very, you need to understand how these words are used, equity and equality. So let me just pause. Why am I dealing with this? Because when you deal with religion, it has its terms. I remember my systematic theology teacher warning us repeatedly. He would say, brethren, define your terms. You have to define your terms. What do you mean by justification? Roman Catholic Church uses justification. What do they mean by it? What do you mean by it? You need to define your terms. Words matter. You have to pay attention. The words that are being used and what people mean by those words. Equity and equality. Though sometimes used interchangeably, woke people prefer equity over equality. To them, equity is making up for past discrimination with current discrimination. Discriminate against the current generation to make up for what happened in the past. If a system is equitable, that means by definition that people are not treated equally. They're not treated equally. They get preferential treatment. And again, it's because of what has maybe happened in the past. Let's treat them preferentially. People are prioritized not by merit or ability, but by a qualification such as gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity. So equity, that's what they want. It's not equality. I mean, you've heard it all for years. Equality, equality. It's not equality they're after. It's equity, which means taking from you and causing certain subsections of the society to suffer in order to help others in an unjust, unjust way. The word privilege, this is used to describe advantages you did not earn 
only someone, uh, only someone part of a group that has more power than another group can have privilege. So a well-educated black woman from a wealthy family does not have privilege, but a white man from a working-class family does have privilege because he's perceived to be part of a dominant group. This is what we're, we said earlier. What group are you in? You have to see then who's the privileged group. Diversity. Diversity, by this word they mean people who look different. Now, you would understand that. You, you know, diversity means people who look different or come from different backgrounds. But when they talk about diversity, it's not just people who look different, but it's people who look different and think alike. They have to think alike. In a woke environment, a conservative black or homosexual cannot be accepted. Thus, diversity focuses on superficial differences found among those holding a woke worldview. You have to hold the views that we've dealt with already. You have to adhere to the premises, to the axioms, to the, the belief system. You have to hold to the religion. You can't have someone stepping out of line. Uh, so all the diversity is superficial, really. It's fi- trying to find that diversity within those that hold the same views. The word inclusion. An inclusive space is a welcoming space, which means that those deemed part of an oppressed group cannot be offended. Thus, the only way to achieve inclusion is to restrict certain ideas from being communicated. That's what we said before. You you start, you start militating against free speech. Twitter's not allowed to be a place where there's a free distribution of ideas. No, it has to have, it has to be a place that is safe for those within the religion of woke. Use words like people being unhoused rather than describe someone without a home as homeless. The woke prefer to place the blame on the systems that result in homelessness. As such, the homeless get described as unhoused, which reflects that it has been done intentionally by an outside force. Again, you see things and you ask, well, can systems make it more difficult to attain housing? Sure. And there may be times in which it's appropriate to use the word unhoused. It's not like a word you can't use. But you have to see how these words are being used and the context in which they're used. Talk about toxic masculinity. This describes any aggressive male behavior. So when a man yells at a woman, it's not just an angry man, it's toxic masculinity. But this terminology is unlikely to be used if a black man yelled at a white female police officer. That wouldn't be toxic masculinity because he's part of an oppressed group. So those are some kind of ways in which words are used, but you have to be careful how, in understanding how they're used. And then you have new terminology, or terminology that may be new to you. Critical race theory. We touched on this before, but this is the view that racism is the everyday state of affairs, right? Racism, you think racism is, is someone has said something about someone that is racist, right? That was a racist statement. That was a racist, racist act. That's a racist law. But critical race theory is a the view that racism is the everyday state of affairs, The goal is to determine how, not if, racism is present. When someone who holds to CRT sees that the income of black people is rising and they're experiencing greater success in the world, 
That is only because white people are permitting that to happen for some self-centered benefit. For example, maybe they're allowing that to happen because it keeps the peace. You know, this is the way they think. It's still racism. Cultural relativism. This is the idea that there's no way to make judgments about the values, practices, or traditions of another culture. It rejects an objective perspective. How this plays out is an absence of any criticism of other cultures, Asian, African, and so on. You can't criticize them. If there's slavery over there, you can't say anything. You can't speak into that because their lived experience is different. Of course, this goes against, this is, this, is, this is supporting the idea that you can't have an objective standard, right? You start, you start dealing with the fact that something can be objective, it can be right or wrong, objectively, no matter where you are in the world, then it collapses, the whole thing collapses. Cultural appropriation. What does it mean when someone says that's cultural appropriation? This is when someone from a dominant culture adopts something from a minority culture, like their dress. So, you're a missionary, and you feel a burden to go to, think of Hudson Taylor. He goes to China, and he realizes if he really wants to make an impact in the China inland mission, he should adopt the dress and the, the, head, the, the hairstyles and so on. That will help. Well, that's cultural appropriation. And by doing that as a white man from the West, he is being disrespectful, exploitative, and offensive. It's so stupid. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, I mean, you go to other cultures and you dress like them, they'll, they'll appreciate it. They'll say, thank you. Thank you for, for doing this. But, but from this perspective, no, you're being condescending. You're being disrespectful. I'll finish with one more. White fragility. This is a term that describes Western Caucasians that are so accustomed to their power and status that if they deny they are racist, it proves they're racist, right? So, so you're living here, you know, you're, you're white, and someone says you're a racist, like many of these books do. You're a racist. Right? They're not basing it on your character. They're not basing it on any evidence of something you've said or done. They're just, you're racist, Right? You were born that way. That's the way it is. That's the system. You're racist. And if you say, no, I am not, that's white fragility. You're, you're fragile. You can't accept the reality of your racism. So you either agree that you're a racist or you have white fragility, which is also evidence of racism. You just don't realize it. And there are others. You could talk about whiteness. You know, whiteness... Bauckham says is a set of normative privileges granted to white-skinned individuals and groups which is invisible to those privileged by it. But it also, when you hear whiteness, sometimes it's really a synonym for, for white supremacy. You'll see that in certain contexts as well. So, so these are the words. These are the words that you find in, in the religion, in the religion of, of woke, in the cult of woke. So, having shown, I think, to some degree that it is a cult at least you understand it, this is a false movement that has no business being in the church. Let's just say very briefly that it is heretical. It is heretical. The woke movement is heretical. This is not a cult that you say, oh, you can try to sanctify it in some way. It's not. 
To be a woke Christian is to be no Christian at all. And I, I'm going to underline that. If someone says, I am a woke Christian, there's some serious problems in their thinking. They either do not know what it is they're saying, or they have jumped off the deep end in terms of their views. In September 2018, Union Seminary, and we know unions jumped off the deep end a long time ago, but Union Seminary tweeted 14 statements. The first one was to do with Scripture, and here's what they said. While divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's. So, I mean, they can't even see the flaw in their own logic. The Bible's written by man. We're going to use flawed men to understand what messages are God's. I mean, it's just like, really? But you see what's happening. You see, you see how critical theory is, is undergirding everything, even how you look at the Bible. Because you can't look at the Bible and say that this is objective, this is, this is the, the Word of God, and this is what it states, and I have to come to terms with it even when it says things I struggle with. The second statement, just by the way, dealt with the image of God and man. And there they said, we affirm that God created every person in God's own image. Accordingly, we deny that vitriol directed towards people because of how God made them. That is to say, sexual orientation or gender identity is in any way faithful, biblical, or godly. So, to point out that this is wrong is, they say, it's not faithful, it's not biblical, it's not godly. And you read the rest of it, it's just a disaster. As Bogan points out in his book, Fault Lines, he, he notes that this cult has its own priesthood. In the Old Testament, the, the only priests were, were Levites, we know that, and they were allowed to serve as priests and everyone else was excluded. In the cult of anti-racism, only oppressed minorities are allowed to serve as priests in this new cult. And those in positions of power are excluded. He says, and I quote, that the oppressed minorities include, quote, people of color, women, LGBTQIA+, non-citizens, the disabled, the obese, the poor, non-Christians, and anyone else with an accepted oppressed status, end quote. They're the priests. Now, if you're part of the oppressed group, you don't get to serve. So, because they elevate then the lived experience of the oppressed, what happens is this cult actually forms then a new expression of Gnosticism. And Bachman points this out too. Because what becomes the truth? You remember the Gnostics in the first century? You've heard that or read about it or heard preachers deal with it. Gnosticism, it comes out in the, the, the New Testament dealing with this, but it's the idea that there's, there's certain knowledge that people have that others don't have. They have special knowledge. Gnostic. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge. They have access to the special knowledge you don't have access to. And it was a cult of the first century, 
and, and beyond. And you, it comes up, it appears in different ways. And it appears right here in this, this cult of woke. Because they have, they have access to their experience that you don't have. And that becomes infallible. You can't question it. And so there are the priests holding all the power, all the knowledge, and there's nothing you can do about it. I was thinking about this. In some ways, the, the idea, the emphasis on, on lived experience is just an extension of autoethnography. Ethnography is a study of like when you go to a culture and you observe how people live or whatever. That's ethnography. You look and see this is how they live, you know, what they do, their practices and so on. Autoethnography is whenever you actually look at your own, your own experiences and your own observations of yourself. And that has become a, 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 an accepted way of, of compiling data and writing papers. And in some ways I think, well, if that's allowed within the universities, is it any wonder then we have this spilling out into other areas. So my final point then, a response to the woke cult. How do we respond? You can't avoid this. You can't. You turn on the TV, it's there. You're on social media, it's there. You listen to people, it, it's, it's spilling out all over the place. You, re, you re, read a book, it's there. You try to read some secular book on child rearing, it will be there. You read a book on education, it's there. You can't turn anywhere, but it's there. And as I say, it's even in the church, infiltrating everything, all institutions, corporations, businesses, politics, sports, everything. We've had it. The, the, the bending of the knee, you know, the, the happiness. This is everywhere. You can't not see it. And it's all the same thing. It's stemming from the same ideology. It's a religion. Can't, you can't have a hobby. You can't, you can't enjoy backpack, backpacking and, and, and going camping without being confronted at some point with woke ideology. It's, it's everywhere. Neil Shenvey is another one who's, who's really honed in on this subject and has produced some very helpful things and I've, I've gleaned from him in various ways. But he argues that critical theory and Christianity have competing worldviews. If the overarching story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, then those that imbibe critical theory, well, they have no creation origin, they have no creation story. But in place of fall, they have oppression. In place of redemption, they have activism. And in the place of restoration, they have liberation. And so they create their own meta-narrative, their own kind of story of where this is all going and why they are dealing with it. So how do we respond to it? You're not getting away from this. I'm not preaching a message so that it gets exposed and doesn't take root. It's already there. I'm preaching this so that, and you know, I've seen others deal with this and talk about this almost incessantly in some quarters. And I've always kind of comforted myself that I, I, I don't think this is influencing our congregation. I'm really hopeful that this isn't being embedded into the thinking of anyone here. And so really, I've dealt with this today not because I actually think it exists, but just as a matter of maybe you're wondering about some of this thing, these things, and here's some kind of helpful information 
to enable you to navigate through it. But maybe there are. Maybe there are some of you that have just, you are being influenced by this. I hope that you will reject it and walk away from it. How do we respond? These are just some ideas. First, do not minimize racism nor exaggerate it. Don't minimize it nor exaggerate it. It's real. Things have happened in the history of this nation that are horrendous. Horrendous. But they're also happening, have happened, and are happening in other nations as well. Again, Bauckham, who, for those of you who don't know Vody Bauckham, he's a black pastor, he, he says, quote, I believe there is racism. I believe there are racists. However, I reject the idea that America is characterized by racism or that racism is an unavoidable byproduct of our national DNA. In fact, I believe America is one of the least racist countries in the world, end quote. Now, you see the relations at times between whites and blacks and various other aspects of, of, of division or distinction within this nation. And, and you may wonder, you know, you may feel terrible or awful in various ways. But it, it's, really, it's really no... It's <laughs> from my perspective, at least, for what it's worth, America does generally... It is equal to or better than many other nations with divisions within their country. I come from Northern Ireland. Is there division there? Absolutely. And do Protestants have Roman Catholic friends? Yes, they do. At times, does, does, does it get heated? Do people start using terms they shouldn't use and mischaracterizing others? And, and do things, violent things happen? Yes, it's all, it's all there in our history. But when I think of, of what the expression of, of the nation with regard to the differences among the people, I don't see America as being any different than what I see expressed in Northern Ireland and the differences there. And you go across, go across the world, just step out of America and go to other nations, and there are problems that exist, historical Issues that exist in almost every nation that has any kind of history whatsoever. It's everywhere. You look at it and you see people, well, they're from this nation. They're, they, they're, 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 they're all the same. But they're not. They're not. You give them that identity because they come from that land, but when you start living in that country, you realize that they have ways of distinguishing between one another. And it goes deep, and there's pain and hurt that exists because of stuff that has happened in the past. Go across the world. It's everywhere. America is not unique in having problems of this kind. So we do not minimize it, but we also do not exaggerate it. Sometimes I think the best thing is, is stop, stop raising it as an issue. Address it when it comes up, but stop raising it as a big issue. You know, like Black History Month and stuff like that. I think you're only making it worse. You're only kind of highlighting that there's an issue. And let me, let me use my lived experience, if you, will, if you may, um, to, to sort of illustrate that point. Because I grew up in a home where my mom never talked about being a Protestant or the fact that I was Protestant or we were Protestant, and my dad being Iranian-Armenian and growing up as a 
Armenian Orthodox, there was no form of religion. So we didn't talk about Protestants and Roman Catholics and the differences. Never, never was discussed in our home. And so none of the kind of cultural distinctions were, were discussed or talked about. I went to school and everybody was the same. I went to school to find out that there were some kind of differences between us and try to figure out what these words mean, these slurs that are used towards the other side. What, what, what does that even mean? I didn't hear about it. And so I would look at people and they were just, they were just people. And, and you say, well, well, you're all white over there. You all look the same. <laughs> um, let me just say that I have to be careful what I say from the pulpit. But on both sides, I'll just say this, on both sides of Irish Catholics and Ulster Scots Protestants, on both sides, they will know one another by, lo- by just looking at one another. They know, they can, they can identify by looking that they're either on like, the same as them or not. Now, you, you look at that and you think, how, how, you're all pasty white, never see the sun, same color of the hair, you know, like how, but you can, and I'll say no more there, except that that is, that is a fact. So you don't, I mean, you don't think about it. You just, you know, it's just the way it is. And with all this talk and discussion about it, only stirs it up and makes it worse. Second, oppose all forms of victim mentality. You have to oppose victim mentality. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Daytime television, what do you have? Jerry Springer, all the rest of it. Was it? It's all victim mentality. It's like bedding it into the culture. What way can I say what's happened to me? And oh, woe is me and all of this. Don't fall into it. Oppose it. It's one of the most empowering and important messages for every man to hear these three words. Now listen, children, adults, these are some of the three most important words you will hear and get a hold of. You are responsible. When you understand that, when you realize, and I don't mean like something has happened and you're guilty. I'm, that may be true. But just generally, you are responsible. God has given you responsibilities and He's given you abilities to attain to those responsibilities. He has given you a calling to live up to those responsibilities. You are responsible. That means you have power. You have ability. You can do this. And of course, we can think about that within the gospel and, you know, man can't bring himself to God and all the rest of it. I, I get it. I'm just looking at this purely in the concept of, of woe betide me because of what's happened in my life. You know, all the benefits, you know, I've born into poverty and all that kind of thing. Don't, don't feed it. Oppose it. Don't let your children talk that way. It's not fair. Don't talk. Don't let them. That language, it is, it is language that removes people from actually achieving anything with their lives. Third, challenge lived experience. Challenge it. Do not let people use their story to manipulate how you should think about something. Challenge it. Now, lived experience has merit. It's not like what you've experienced means nothing, or nothing can be learned by what you've experienced. But it is not, as it is within the the cult of woke, it is not an infallible arbiter of societal issues. Now, I have have seen, I have seen some 
what I would say, very knowledgeable, educated people talk about their childhood. Let's, let's just say people with, with a similar childhood to my own growing up in the United Kingdom as I did. And they make this big issue about the racism that they experienced because their ethnicity wasn't British. So they came into the country, their father, their mother, whatever, and they're in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, living there, experiencing racism. And when they talk about it, it's like, oh, this, this sad story of your life and what you went through. And it saddens me. It really saddens me. I, I think this is not the right way to think about this. And you're a Christian, and you're an educated Christian. You should know better. You're well-read. You should, you should understand these things better. I had the same thing. Now, Armenians are considered white, Caucasian, right? It's, it's right there in the heart of Caucasia. I mean, it's, but, of course, my features tend to be dark. A bit of sun hits me, features darken up, and all of a sudden I'm standing out like, you know, the, the different one among the, the playground of all the kids, right? So when, thing, when, when you upset someone or someone upset you, often I would, I would be on the receiving end of racial slurs. And I've thought about that, and especially all the discussion about racism in recent years, coming into America, hearing it talked about so much. And I've reflected on it and thought, what I received in terms of words that were used, and you would say, oh, it's terrible that you went through all that. But it took me five seconds to look across and think, I remember this person. They get called all sorts of names because their hair was ginger. Or they had thick-framed glasses and so, you know, specky four-eyes or some other name, you know, it was meant to be derogatory and, you know, or maybe, maybe their parents didn't have much money so they had to go a second year with those, those pants, I was going to say trousers, those pants, and they were maybe a little short so they're kind of not quite hitting the shoe and they look a little short and people make, f- kids are cruel! I mean, that's the bottom line. They are cruel. They are the children of Adam. They say wicked things all the time. You can't go into school and not hear it and see it daily. Just walk around a playground. Let's see how they interact. You're going to see it manifest in all sorts of ways. So, so why does the person who has experienced racial slur get some preference over some person who had expressions of poverty or had to wear glasses or had funny hair or whatever? I mean, it's, it's just kids being cruel. It's whatever distinction they can point out and use to kind of put you down in front of everyone else. The bottom line then is that men are sinful. Racism is an expression of sin. And if a man can't point out your difference based on how you look, by the color of your skin, he's going to point it out by other ways if he so desires. So, challenge lived experience. Fourth, reject false guilt. Reject false guilt. You're not inherently guilty of oppression by being male, or by being white, or by being wealthy, or by being Christian, or by being able-bodied, or whatever group or category they wish to put you in. The woke cult has no forgiveness for you. 
There's no forgiveness. Understand that. There is no forgiveness. It is a purgatory for those deemed the oppressor. A purgatory you can't get out of. You just constantly try to do penance for your sin, for being in the oppressed groups. So you either admit your guilt as an oppressor, as a racist, or whatever, or you're in denial of your oppression and racism. You need to become an anti-racist, which means opposing all forms. You have to adopt this mentality where you're opposing everything that they dictate ought to be opposed. So again, Bauckham says, white people are not called to look to God for forgiveness. They are not told that Christ's blood is sufficient. No, they are told that they must do the unending work of anti-racism, end quote. Just for a moment, turn, because this came to mind, Luke 19. Go to Luke 19 for a minute. What I'm saying is reject false guilt. You have enough sins to confess. Don't allow people to invent sins that you're supposedly to repent of. God gets to define sin. So we come to the, the narrative given concerning Zacchaeus. And, and you, you, you know, I'll not read it all, but verse 5 of Luke 19, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now, I want you to see what he is doing here. He has lived a life that has been perceived in the society as wicked and sinful. And he says, voluntarily, half of my goods I give to the poor. I'm giving evidence of my repentance. This is real. This is it. My life changes here, now, today. And I'm giving half my wealth to the poor. And if, always amazes me how that word gets missed, but it's there. It's there. If, it does not say, many say Zacchaeus went and he, this is what he did. He, 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 he had stolen from people and so he restored what he stole. It doesn't say that he did that. It doesn't say, he's not saying I did that. He's saying if, 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 if I slip my mind, I can't think of it. There's, there's someone I perhaps, you know, miscalculated, took more than I ought. If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. If. So, he is not, he is, he is, he is, he is not doing this because he sees it. He is doing it if perhaps it is real, he will, he will do it. So, here's my point. If you're guilty of sin, if you're guilty of wrongdoing, right the wrong. But don't let people make up sins you're not guilty of. You have enough to repent of. Which brings us fifthly and finally, love the gospel. Love the gospel. It is the gospel that gives hope to all the oppressed and gives hope to all the oppressed. It is the gospel that caused slaves, and this is a historical fact, that caused slaves to thank God for their slavery, for they would never have heard the gospel without it. 
there are endless lists of people who put on record their ability to look at the awfulness of their circumstances and say like Joseph that while they were oppressed, what man meant for evil, God worked and meant for good. And the writer, again, of Fault Lines, Vole Bottom, says a similar thing happened to him. In 2006, on a trip to Africa, Bottom experienced what he talked about, forgiveness. Standing on African soil, he realized he had come full circle, back to the place where his ancestors were betrayed by fellow Africans and sold to white slave traders. He considered the horror of the Middle Passage, the experiences of his ancestors, and then he forgave. He forgave because he was, quote, overcome by the weight and majesty of God's providence. He was overcome by the weight and majesty of God's providence. His ancestors had been mistreated, but they survived. Generation after generation survived the horrors of slavery, segregation, and Jim Crow. Bauckham himself was born a free man in the greatest, wealthiest nation in the world. This is how he, he views it. He had received world-class theological education, and now God had brought him back, he says, quote, back to Africa to bless the descendants of the people, end quote. Those who had sold his ancestors into slavery. And he says, quote, in the end, it is forgiveness that will heal our wounds. That's how you end. That, that's, that's how you want to end. It's forgiveness that heals. And the woke cult is the religion of bitterness. That's what it is. It's a religion of bitterness. It has no forgiveness. You live in perpetual bitterness. No salvation. No hope. So reject it. It is going to morph. It is going to change. I can't go up here and tell you all the new terminology and how it's shifting all the time every single week. But be on the alert. Be very aware. This is filtering into everywhere and everything, every subject. I don't care what you study at university. Be aware that in some way this ideology is infiltrating. The funding for the universities has to be passed. You have to meet certain standards. Sometimes those standards require adopting this kind of ideology and language. Be careful. And proclaim to a lost world. Don't be angry at them. But in balanced, clear tones, challenge their ideology challenge its hopelessness and point to the Lord Jesus Christ and how he changes your identity in a way that is irreversible. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. we bow before the Lord, just a moment we'll go for fellowship. And with that fellowship, you will be distracted, start talking with people. But maybe there are matters that you need to address before God, before you are distracted.
Maybe you do harbor racist thoughts. Maybe you do have, in your anger at what is going on, you have a wrong perspective and you have animosity when Jesus told you to love your neighbor and love your enemy. You need to repent of your sin. Perhaps you have adopted views that align with this movement because you you want to be accepted within your circles. Let me just remind you that you are being separated from Christ when you do that. You put Him and His Word first. And pray for our nation. This, this, this ideology is, is not going away. Uh, it's distorting and making people angrier. Where once the gospel would bring hope of reconciliation and peace. We sang earlier of redemption ground the ground of peace. This, this is not a ground of peace. This is a war and they want you to step onto the battlefield. but all, all the odds are in their favor. You can't win. This is not good for our nation. It's not good for our people. It's not good for our children. May God have mercy. Lord, we do pray, have mercy on this nation. Spare us from the twisted ideology of those influenced by the devil. Deliver us, O God, from the seeds of bitterness that rise up and take on academic and specially crafted language. We pray that Thou wilt spare the children of our land from such hatred and anger and bitterness. Root it out of our schools. Root it out of our government. Root it out of our universities, out of our churches. Root it out of our community. We pray for peace. We pray, Lord, that blacks and whites and people of every ethnicity could sit together in the same room and sing the praises of the Lamb. We pray, O God, that Thou wilt help us to stand firm against falsehood while welcoming people into the truth, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done. So give us grace. Bless our evangelistic efforts in this, in this church. Use us, we pray. Bless our time together tonight. Be with us around the tables. Help us to be of encouragement and to receive encouragement and go home and lay our heads on our pillows rejoicing in the Lord's day and empower us to live for thee this week. So bless the food to us, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.